So we're only starting in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Seemed like a good place to start. So um, we're going to read just the first nine verses. I'm going to tackle those this morning. And um, I'm just going to pray first. Father, we thank you for your word, for all of it, and for the truths that are contained within it. So Father, we pray by your spirit, just be with us. Father, take my words, and Lord, I pray that you would speak through, the, through them, Lord, and, and use them, Lord, for your glory, I ask in Jesus' name. And so, Father, just pray for wisdom. Holy Spirit, just be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, it says this. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the people of this earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. You know, I can remember as a teenager, I guess, being intrigued by this book and, and actually just wondering what on earth it was all about, and then becoming increasingly amazed by just the bizarre interpretations that would come from within this prophecy. How some people would spend hours, days, sometimes years, trying to fit every natural disaster or every event of this world into the prophecy of Revelation. Now, I'm still fascinated by this book and the messages and the mysteries that are contained within it because over the years, prophecies have come and they have gone. But this book, written by the Apostle John, is still with us. The title of this book, the word Revelation, means unveiling. It simply means to uncover, to reveal, to make known. And as if the Holy Spirit 
pulls back the curtains and just gives us this privilege of seeing the risen, victorious, glorified Jesus in heaven. But he also gives us this glimpse into the fulfillment of Christ's purposes here on earth. In fact, this book of Revelation is an open book where God reveals his plans for his church. At the end of the book of Revelation, John tells us, do not seal up the words of this prophecy, of this scroll, because the time is near. That's Revelation 22, verse 10. And this book is written with this sense of urgency. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. But it's so important as we get into this book, particularly as we get into some of the more um, symbolic and, and, and um, difficult passages of this book, that we remember that John's prophecy is primarily the revelation of Jesus. It's not just about the revelation of the things that are to come. And Jesus is the main focus of this book of Revelation. And we must never lose sight of him through it. Revelation verses 1, 2, 3. Christ is seen as the exalted prophet, priest, and king. The one who is ministering to the churches. To these seven churches that we will come to in chapter 2 and 3. Revelation 4 and 5. He is seen in heaven as the glorified Lamb of God who reigns on the throne. In, verses, in, sorry, in chapter 6 to 18. Christ is the judge of all the earth. In chapter 19, he returns to earth as the conquering king of kings, as the Lord of lords. And then in the last three um, chapters of this book, as this book comes to a close, we see the heavenly bridegroom, that is Jesus, welcoming his bride, that's his church, into his heavenly city. And the purpose of studying this book is simply this, that we get to know our Savior better. The context that John writes into at his particular time was a context of great deal of persecution and suffering. It said that a few number of years back, archaeologists were digging up the remains of a school in Rome, and they came across a wall painting from the third century. This picture showed a boy standing with his arms raised, worshipping the figure on a cross. This figure looked like a man, except he had the head of a donkey, because that is what many Romans thought of Jesus, a donkey. And then scrawled near that painting were the words, written in the hands of a, a young person, were the words, Alexa Minus worships his God. A little bit further on, a second inscription read, Alexa Minus is faithful. And apparently this young man who was a Christian was being mocked by his schoolmates because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Yet he was not ashamed of his Savior. And it's into that sort of context that John is writing this letter, this book of Revelation. 
And Jesus was viewed as a, as a dead donkey, as, as, and actually his followers were just legitimate targets for, for abuse and for persecution. In fact, even the apostle John himself, this guy, of course, who's written one of the Gospels, he's also written three letters by his own name, first, second, and third John. He's arrested in Ephesus for worshiping and for preaching Jesus Christ in about A.D. 90. He's taken to the island of Patmos. This is a, a prison island where he's kept captive. And it's here that he writes this book. He writes this letter of revelations. But persecution of the church was so severe at that time that most of his friends are actually already dead. Peter, who had been cast into the horrible prison called Manatime, where he had spent nine months in absolute darkness. He had endured monstrous torture, just being handcuffed to a post. And yet in spite of all his suffering and all his persecution, he is still able to lead many of his jailers, in fact, 47 other people who come to faith in Jesus Christ, even in the middle of all of that. And Peter eventually meets his death at the hand of Nero, where he is crucified upside down in AD 67. Around a similar sort of time, Paul is also beheaded. Although John is almost certainly the writer of this book, he is not the author. Though these words are directly from Jesus. According to the first two verses of Revelation chapter 1, God the Father gives the revelation to Jesus, his son, and then his son shares it with the apostles, often using angels as, as, messenger, as a messenger. So it is God here who is described as the, the one who sends the angels to speak. It's also God who is the one who gives John the visions these unexpected pictures of the future, these sort of revelations of things that are to come, things that will soon take place. In fact, throughout this book, John is told, write this down. He is simply a scribe. He is a pen in the hands of God. And listen, you can be sure, absolutely sure, that John recognizes Jesus and recognizes Jesus' words here. John knew Jesus intimately. We read in the Gospels how he would lean on Jesus during a meal, how just to, to chat with him. It was John who saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was seen in his glorified state. It was John who's one of three who was taken by Jesus a little bit further on into the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus goes and prays before he is taken to the cross, before he dies. He knows that Jesus is speaking to him, and this comes across, this in those first few verses in Revelation chapter 1, his heart is just filled with excitement, and as he thinks of Jesus, he just reflects on the victory of Christ that is to come. His Savior, who he dearly loves, is returning as king with power, and he really, he really wants these seven churches to know all about it, to know this amazing, this great news. But these words of revelation 
are just all the more poignant because the fact is they are not John's words. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus is speaking. Speaking about his power, his glory, his victory that is to come. Now, in much of the book of Revelation, as we will get a little bit deeper into it, we will see lots of, John uses lots of symbolism, I guess a kind of, of sort of spiritual code. And there are probably a number of reasons why he does that. Perhaps one of the reasons is because of just the level of persecution that's going on at that moment. You see, only those who really knew Christ personally, who actually understood a lot about Scripture, would have really been able to understand a lot of what's written in here. So if a Roman official tried to use Revelation as an excuse or a, a way of finding evidence against Christians, this book would simply have been a puzzle to them. They probably just wouldn't have been able to, to grasp it. But perhaps a greater reason why, why John uses symbolism is that it just doesn't weaken with time. And John is able to draw, to draw some amazing, some great images of God's revelation and to put them into this exciting drama that is played out in these pages. But this brings courage. In fact, it brings a great deal of encouragement to multitudes of suffering and persecuted men and women down through the centuries over the last thousands, couple, two thousand years. But it's also so important that we put a little warning in here that we do not conclude that because John is using symbolism that somehow these events are not real. These events are very, very real. But perhaps the third reason why John speaks and writes in this particular way is because symbolism not only conveys information, it actually imparts values and emotions. See, John could have said in Revelation chapter 13 that a dictator will come to rule in the world, but instead he describes a beast. It brings a whole level of different imagery, does it not? And it conveys for us so much more than, than the word dictator probably could ever do. But again, another warning. As we understand John's symbolism, we must be so careful that we do not let our minds just run riot and just put whatever we think or whatever comes to our minds into this. We need to make sure that we ground everything in Scripture. You see, biblical symbolism must be understood in the light of all of Scripture. It must be consistent with all of biblical revelation. So some of the symbolism is explained, and it's actually very easy to understand. Others actually can only be understood through reading of the Old Testament. There are something like 300 references to the Old Testament found in this book of Revelation, but others simply not explained, not at all. And there we need to be very careful that we don't put something into Scripture that is simply not there. So we must anchor any interpretation we have here in what God has already revealed to us through both the Old and the New Testament, lest we sort of misinterpret this important book. And this is important. This is so important as we get into this. 
because I believe with all of my heart that every verse of Scripture is carefully written by God and ought to lead us. It should lead us to a place of obedient worship. And the book of Revelation is no different. But perhaps the biggest challenge in, in, in tackling this book is that there are so many different views and opinions as to how Jesus is going to come back again and how this world is going to end. You can, you know, there are at least four main ones and then there are probably a multitude of others beyond that. Now, I'm not for a moment going to give you the answers in this series, okay? I'm not that clever. And in fact, if it's taken countless other theologians years who cannot agree, we're not going to find the answers, okay? That's not what we're doing here. We're pointing people towards Christ. We want to meet our Savior in the pages of this book. And there's the risk that we can just simply go completely overboard and we can somehow let our imaginations just run such riot that we do a disservice to the Word of God. You see, John is writing as a pastor. That's what he is. He's a pastor. He's a pastor writing to these seven churches in Asia, which is now modern-day Turkey. And while this letter certainly does speak of future events, its purpose, again, is to point people towards Jesus Christ, to bring encouragement to believers who are struggling. But like all of Scripture, while, again, while these verses are primarily written to these seven churches, they're not exclusively for them. They are just as important to us today, and they're not limited to that. We need to remember that these are simply ordinary Christians. These are people like you and me in those seven churches. They're battling with the same problems and difficulties that we face. They're battling with sin. This becomes very clear as we come to read the individual letters to the churches in, in chapter 2 and 3. They're struggling with lack of love, with apathy towards God, with false teaching, with sexual immorality, with lack of faith, with sinfulness. But actually, these believers are also under a great deal of persecution, and, and they are just facing a huge amount of struggles in their faith, with their circumstances, with just with the different events that they are having to face up to in life. But you know what? Down through the years, there are countless other Christians, unknown believers, who have had to walk that exact same road that those early um, Christians had to walk in those early churches, a road of suffering and death for the sake of Christ. And into their hopeless situation of suffering, of imprisonment, and even death comes a book of hope. In the past 2,000 years, it is thought that 70 million Christians have died for their faith in Christ. In the last 100 years, things have got even worse. In the last 100 years, it's estimated about 40 million Christians have died for their faith because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this book is certainly as relevant, perhaps even more relevant now today than it maybe has ever been. Because the statement of verse 3, for the time is near, is even more poignant than it's ever been. So how should we respond to, to verse 3? Let me read all of it for you. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. 
and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, there are two responses, and in fact, there are also two blessings within that one verse. The first is this, this book must be read and it must be preached. I've had a nervousness about preaching this book because of the complex nature of it and because of, of the many difficult questions that it's going to bring up over time. But it's so important that I also balance that up with the promise from God that there is blessing for the person who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. But there's another blessing in here. In fact, an even more important blessing because it includes, it includes all of us. A blessing for those who hear and respond to it in obedience. Those who keep what is written, it says, there is blessing. So as we come and look at this book of Revelation together, you need to take seriously the warning of judgment, the instruction to worship God. You need to accept Jesus as your Savior and live in obedience because He is coming soon. He is coming soon. In fact, the right response, maybe the only response, is worship. That's exactly how John responds in verses 4 to 8. Let me just read those verses again. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from God who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of all the kings of this earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve him his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the people of this earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty One. You know, I can remember that day like it was yesterday when my daughter was born. I can remember the excitement that I felt, and the joy in my heart. It just was incredible. She was born about, just after midnight, about 12.30. I remember going home, grabbing a few hours sleep, and then coming back into the hospital again. And then I was sent off to the supermarket to buy nappies, the very first nappies I'd ever bought. And I was just so excited about buying nappies. Incredible. And I, and, and I, completely out of character to me, I'm going up to complete strangers and I'm telling them just about my new baby girl and with such joy and excitement. That conversation was just so one-sided. I'm sharing every detail, every excitement, and just with such delight. And the other person, we didn't even get a chance to speak. And that, in a sense, is what John does here as he begins this book. 
He begins this letter, as actually many other New Testament letters begin, with the words, the grace and the peace from God the Father, except he uses an extended version of the, of the Old Testament name, Yahweh. He describes God as the eternal one who is and who was and who is to come. And then there are the seven spirits who stand before the throne. Now, the number seven, as many of you may know, is a perfect number. And John is not saying that there are seven spirits. He's saying that there is one spirit, the perfect spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is seen in His fullness here. The reference probably going back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then finally, He comes to Jesus Christ. And he, we see Jesus Christ in this threefold office as prophet, this faithful witness, the one who is truth beyond truth, the one whose words can be absolutely trusted. We see him as priest, first born from the dead, the one who is exalted, the first above everyone else. And then we see him as king, ruler of the kings of this earth, King of kings and Lord of lords. So John greets this church on behalf of the sovereign God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But of all the three persons of the Trinity, it is Jesus alone that this book is dedicated to. The reason? Because of what he's done for his people. He loves me. Can you say that? He loves me. He has always loved me from before time began. He loves me, present tense. His constant love for me and his expression of that through his once and for all, all act of outrageous love that took him to the cross. And he has washed me. He has set me free from sin. It said that once a student went to the great theologian Barth and asked him to sum up the most important thing in his life's work and his theology and everything he had studied in just a, just a few words. Barth thought about it for a, a moment and then he smiled and he said, in the words of a song that my mum used to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. And there is no greater truth than the love of Jesus and that he has set you free from sin. There is nothing greater than that. But as a climax to all of this, Christ has made us a kingdom of priests. And this is what really grips John. See, King Jesus has a love that led him to the cross, and his blood was poured out so that we are set free. And then, as if that is not enough, he has given us this elevated position. You are a priest in his kingdom who proclaims the word of God. 
This means that as a priest, as a believer, we are rightful ambassadors to the king who rules over every king. And no one and nothing can stop us from calling all people everywhere to submit to King Jesus. The kings of this earth may not recognize that right or even that authority, but you can speak with absolute boldness and confidence because you do this in the authority of Jesus Christ, the one who rules over every king, over every politician, over every other authority. You stand under his authority and his authority alone. John Piper writes, for this earth is under the rulership of Christ. So glory and dominion are his forever and ever. And then as John speaks of Christ, he looks up and he says, look, he is coming. Now, it's not that Christ is coming at that particular moment or that exact moment, but he is so sure of the words that he is speaking. He is so sure of the authority of God and the plan of Christ to come back again that he speaks in the present tense. He is coming with the clouds of glory. He is coming and no one can stop him. The time is near. Soon every eye will see him. Listen, whether you believe it or not, whether you know it or not, there is a day coming when Jesus Christ's return and everyone, and I mean everyone, will know that Jesus Christ is king. And that is the overriding theme of this book of Revelation. Jesus is coming back to defeat the evil and to establish his reign. This is a book of victory where God's people are seen as overcomers. Now, it may not feel like that sometimes. It may not feel like that even during this week. It may feel sometimes that the church and even Christ seems to be defeated within this world and that our faith seems to be almost some sort of false hope. But I, I just love the way that a guy called Peter Marshall puts it. He says it like this. It is better to fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than to succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. And God is certain to work out His divine purposes in human history. You see, He is the Alpha and the Omega, verse 8. These are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is the first and the last. In fact, He is everything in between. And God is at the beginning of all things, and He is at the end of all things. He is the Eternal One unlimited by time. He is almighty, able to do everything. And these are the words that will boom out from heaven. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty One. Listen, the timeless sovereignty of God rules over this world, over this church, and over your life. How do we respond to such great truths? Well, just two things in closing, just two thoughts. The first is this. The greatness of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit should lead us to a place of active worship and praise. 
our hearts should just overflow with adoration for our King. Our hearts should just melt in His presence. He alone deserves worship. He alone deserves the glory and the honor. The second response is this. The greatness of the coming judgment and the return of Jesus should lead us to accept Jesus as our Savior. And this is important. There is a day coming when we will all stand before God and God will judge. And if you do not know Jesus, if you do not know the cleansing and forgiving of Christ on that day, then you will stand before God guilty, a sinner. And God who is righteous and who is absolutely fair will condemn you to never-ending punishment, to separation from Him. But when you come in repentance and ask for forgiveness from Him, He will make you clean. He will wash away your sins. He will fill you with, your holy, with His Holy Spirit, and you will become a new person. And listen, make sure, make sure that the punishment for your sin is behind you on the cross and not ahead of you when Jesus Christ returns. As we finish, I simply say, are you ready to be a worshiper? To the one who alone deserves our worship, to the one who is king above every king, the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your greatness and for your love and for the forgiveness that you bring. But Lord, we thank you, Lord, as well, that you are victorious. The victory is yours. And Lord, we give you glory for all that you have done for us and will continue to do. And we praise your name, Lord. We just praise your holy and your precious name. Lord, one day we'll do that forever, for all of eternity, Lord. So, Father, we want to get in practice. We love you and adore you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.